Hey friend, hope you're enjoying the podcast and these incredible stories of people who are walking through difficult challenges and traumas and finding hope on the other side of them. As many of our guests have shared, healing is a journey, and I want to take a moment to let you know about an incredible tool we offer here at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries to help you on your healing journey. Our Pain to Purpose course is truly the heart of what we do. It's a practical, life-changing, proven path to help you move from whatever trauma, tragedy, or trial you have faced in, in your life into a life of healing and purpose. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. Listen to what Michelle, a Pain to Purpose participant, shared about her experience with the course. I lost my daughter in November of 2018. She was married, had two young children, and it was just a terrible accident. I was definitely struggling with all the whys. The most beneficial part I found was the whole course, but um, that I needed to lean into my pain. I needed to process my pain, acknowledge it, because you had to feel it to go to process um, and come out on the other side. If you're ready to lean into your pain and come out on the other side like Michelle, I want to invite you to sign up now for the Pain to Purpose course by going to course.nothingiswasted.com. Again, that's course.nothingiswasted.com. Or if you're watching on YouTube, click the link right below. There you'll get access to all the course videos and everything you need to start moving from pain to purpose. Listen, pain is an, it's inevitable, but you don't have to walk through it without the tools that can bring deeper healing. Let us guide you through whatever you're facing currently. Go to course.nothingiswasted.com. Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, where we believe that no matter what you've gone through in life, God is inviting you to partner with Him to take back your story. On this podcast, we have inspiring conversations with people who are doing just that. And now, your hosts, Davey Blackburn and Aubrey Sampson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aubrey Sampson, and... And I'm Davey Blackburn, and it's always good to be with you, Aubrey. It's always good to have you guys listening as well, watching on YouTube. Yeah, we love being with you, listeners and watchers. That's right. Every week, every week. We've got a great conversation. Yes, this is a good one. With Russell Moore, Dr. Dr. Russ Moore. Is that what you call him, Russ? I call him Russ Moore. Because you're like if, on a first name as basis. As if he's like my best friend, right? No, I, I would say he probably would prefer to be called Dr. Russell Moore. He is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. And he's got a book called book out called Losing Our Religion, an altar for evangel an altar call for evangelical America. He has written just tremendous things, kind of calling the church back to its first love, Jesus. Mm, so, so good. Such a great voice in the world. So good. So good. Actually, this conversation is great because Aubrey and I get to listen to this conversation along with you guys because Eric Shoemaker is the one who interviews him. So um, yeah, it's incredible. We'll be back on the back end of this conversation to have some, to dive into our own commentary on this. Uh, but before we jump into this, if you are trying to figure out a way to get started on your own healing journey, we'd love to invite you to join me on a Zoom call called Five Steps to Taking Back Your Story No Matter What You've Gone Through. You can go to nothingiswasted.com slash start here to register for the next one of those. I'd love for you to join us on that. We always have a great time, great group there. Usually have some Q&A there on the, on the back end of that after I teach through the five steps to taking back your story. So 
Yeah, it's so worth your time. That's right. I think it's wasted.com slash start here. All right, let's go ahead and take a listen to our friend Eric's conversation. Well, welcome listeners to another episode of the Nothing is Wasted podcast. I am your host, Eric Shoemaker, and I am here uh, with a guest I have been looking forward to talking to, a former seminary professor of mine and uh, a man that I have uh, followed online and admired and appreciated very much since the, oh, 20 some years since I uh, graduated from seminary, Dr. Russell Moore. Has it been 20 something years? Oh, yeah. I hate to say that. I I graduated seminary in 2002. So, yeah. I had you for two classes my last last year of seminary, and um, they were wonderful. Though, Though I do have to complain, Dr. Moore, you did not. In, now this was a doctrine class, so maybe this wasn't your your area. Mm-hmm. But you did not you did not equip me for pastoring through a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> With that political season thrown into the mix. Of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, next time, next time I'll take next that class. time. Yeah, uh, Doctor Moore is the editor in chief of Christianity Today, and you heard a bit more in our introduction about. Um, all the many wonderful things that he does. He is the author of Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America, which I just read this past week. And I was just very encouraged by it. So thank you for writing that, Dr. Moore. Thank you. Uh, uh, why don't you just start by uh, introducing yourself to our podcast listeners and tell us a bit about who you are and what you're doing right now. Well, I live in Nashville, Tennessee with my wife, Maria, and uh, three of our five sons. Two are, two are out of the house and three are here. And um, serve as editor-in-chief at Christianity Today and active in my local church and, and around, the, around the country and around the world. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, let's jump back um, more than 20 years and explore... Your life a little bit. So, uh, where were you on October 9th, 1971? Uh, I was being born in <laughs> Gulfport Memorial Hospital. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And what, what was your family like? Um, I had a, my dad's side of the family was Baptist. My grandfather had been a pastor of the church I grew up in, although before I, before I was born. My mother's side of the family was Catholic. Um, had a really, I think in a lot of ways, idyllic childhood in Biloxi, Mississippi, um, and uh, spent uh, a lot of time in the woods, in the swamps and bios and so forth. Um, and so that's, uh, that's where I grew up. I had great parents and uh, two brothers and a grandmother who was my pastor grandfather's widow who lived right next door. Wonderful. And so church was a part of your life? Oh yeah, uh, from from the very beginning, um, I was really active in our church, uh, Woolmarket Baptist Church. Uh, was there Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday worship, youth choir, 
uh, training union, discipleship training, evening worship, Monday night visitation, Wednesday night royal ambassadors, and then uh, prayer meeting, Friday night with some sort of youth group uh, event. So my whole week was structured around mm. my church. Mm. And this was a Southern Baptist church? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And when were you saved? About uh, around a little before age of 12. Okay. Okay, and then called to ministry? Um, shortly thereafter. It wasn't too long uh, after. Um, and I went and talked to my pastor about that, preached my first sermon at 12, uh, because he because he asked me to, and it was terrible. Um, but it was a, it was a really... It was a really good church. It wasn't a perfect church, of course. There's not one, but it was a very good church and mm. some some really good pastoral leadership there. Mm. I learned a lot. I appreciate it in your book. You, you I, I don't know if it was that service or not, but it might have been a youth service where you were preaching uh, at a fairly young age and talking about how your congregation took you you seriously. You know, yeah. They, uh, I, I just, I loved that. Yeah, that was that service. And it was, you know, in, in uh, and of course I didn't recognize this at the time, uh, but now I know what would have been really easy is for them to see this as, oh, isn't this cute? The kids mm-hmm. are playing church. Um, and that's not the way they treated it at all. They treated it as, uh, you know, you all are going to be leaders of the church in the future, and um, we're helping you to sort out exactly how to do that. Mm. And uh, that was remarkable. I mean, we, we, that was one of the things that I think my church did really well, and I'm not sure whether they did that intentionally mm. or if it was just what they knew mm. in the same way that, you know, I will often say to people, I think my home church didn't know how to do children's ministry. So they did the only thing they knew how to do, which was to teach us the Bible. <laughs> and that's sort of set the whole trajectory of my life. So uh, <laughs> it may have been unintentional, but I'm glad for it. Oh, yeah. Praise God for that. Um, and what, what did that do in you in terms of your love for the local church? Um, well, the church was always, um, you know, when you, when you sing sort of the metaphors of family, uh, that did not seem metaphorical to me. Mm-hmm. That, that seemed quite literal, uh, mm. to, to almost literal to me, uh, because this was a, a family and also that this was a, um, it, it's hard to explain. It was an identity. I, I really thought of myself first in terms of uh, the church, even before I thought of myself in terms of my school or my peer group or, or some, I mean, and peer group was uh, largely, we were all there mm-hmm. uh, together. But that's that's sort of where I saw my primary identity. Mm-hmm. And what about denominationally? How did that how did it impact your view of the SBC? Well, that we were taught um, very early on. Uh, again, I think it comes back to that taking these children seriously uh, idea is they were raising us up not just to not just to steward the church into the next generation, but to steward the SBC, the Southern Baptist mm-hmm. Convention. And it was a different day uh, for uh, the SBC at that. At that time, 
and for for a long time it had been this way, there were basically three, maybe you know, two, three basic kinds of Southern Baptist church. And so we were sort of a blue collar revivalist uh, Southern Baptist church. Downtown, there was the uh, First Baptist Church. If you went to almost any place uh, in the country and you went into the um, the First Baptist Church, you would find something almost completely uh, the same as the First Baptist Church in my town. And if you went to the blue collar, more revivalist uh, church in any city, any place, it would have been basically the same thing. You'd have the same sort of uh, hymnody, the same programs, the same uh, everything, even the same architecture. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, Maria and I, my wife and I were visiting a church when we moved to Louisville and I was really disoriented about uh, about moving to, to Louisville. We were visiting church churches and one of them I sat down and I said the service hadn't even started yet and I said I don't know I just feel at home here and she said of course you do it's the exact same architecture <laughs> as your home church and uh and so I I came to to realize I could pinpoint a right around exactly when a church was built because churches that couldn't afford it the Sunday school board later lifeway uh would would provide architectural plans so mm. it was a a very very similar sort of experience across the board and we we were uh, raised to to love that, to see it as our identity, um, and also to see it as a kind of uh, stewardship and and mission. I mean, it, it's not that we thought that there were no other Christians. That was that was never part of what what we were taught. But it was that you know we have a unique responsibility because we're Southern Baptists. We're part of the greatest uh, missions force since the Apostle Paul, so forth. Uh, that was that was very much a part of uh, of my growing up. And I, I um, you know, we uh, Royal Ambassadors, which is kind of the Boy Scouts denomination. Uh, Boy Scouts, but it was about um, learning missions, learning denominational heritage, and and so forth. And mm. Baptist uh, training union, discipleship training, was specifically about kind of Baptist distinctives. What does it What does it mean to carry this uh, heritage into the future? Hey friend, I want to share with you one of my absolute favorite resources from Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. It's the Pain to Purpose 42-Day Devotional. This devotional is a beautiful 42-day journey through life's valleys with biblically-based encouragement to help you or someone you love navigate the difficulties of life. Each week, you'll learn from the journey of a major character in Scripture and be able to reflect on how that impacts your own story and whatever you're facing. From Job to David, Ruth to Jesus himself, you'll see how God has taken the most dire of circumstances and brought healing and redemption from the ashes. This devotional makes a great gift for the person who is walking through a recent loss or trauma or who carries the wounds from pain in their past. It's something that you can keep on hand to give to someone who is experiencing any kind of pain point, and it's a great addition to your daily time with the Lord. For just $25, you can get one for yourself or gift it to a friend. For our Nothing Is Wasted podcast listeners, 
we want to offer you 20% off your entire order of the devotional, whether it's one or whether it's 20, using the coupon code PODCAST. Again, 20% off your entire order of devotionals using the coupon code PODCAST. Grab a copy today of the Pain to Purpose 42-Day Devotional at nothingiswasted.com slash devo, D-E-V-O, nothingiswasted.com slash devo. Be encouraged by it yourself or encourage someone else in their journey through life's valleys. Again, nothingiswasted.com slash devo. Growing up in Iowa, growing up in a Lutheran church, my first introduction to Southern Baptist life was heading to Southern Seminary in 1999, and mm-hmm. uh, Southern Baptist world was different uh, than Lutheran Iowa. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, I, and of course, I've been pastoring um, in SBC churches uh, for uh, just just finished uh, 21 years, and uh, and and I've come to learn that uh, folks who have been Lifetime Southern Baptist have that that is very real that that denominational oh yeah allegiance and and love yeah. for the denomination um, yeah. and in 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 some in some I think there's very healthy forms of that mm-hmm. and um, and so listeners who you know listeners if you haven't grown up in that in that environment or in a denomination like that what I want you to hear is just this was this was in Dr. Moore. This was in your DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, and um, and and deeply loved. And um, so, talk a little bit now about. Um, well, you would end up becoming the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, mm-hmm. um, which has a lot to do with public policy and politics mm-hmm. and so forth. Talk to me a little bit about your political upbringing and how that became a thing for you. Well, I, I, uh, as I said earlier, I experienced a call to ministry early on and talked to my pastor, talked to other people. But then there came a point where I started to drift away from that for, for uh, not, uh, not away from Christ, but uh, away from that call to ministry. And I really, uh, didn't see how I could, um, I just didn't see, myself there anymore. And so I ended up in a really crazily young in a political um, occupation. So I was, I was, you know, working on campaigns in high school and then uh, ended up uh, on a campaign and then as a congressional intern and then as a staff member and then as a campaign communications director for my uh, United States congressman. Who was and is an amazing man. Our, our youngest son is named after him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, he taught me a lot about mm-hmm. integrity and, uh, and just, you know, riding around with him all over the district or back and forth from the house floor in Washington. He's always the same person. Mm-hmm. And it was striking to me because I would talk to other, uh, people who worked for, for people they considered to be frauds <laughs> and who were uh, and I just never had that experience mm. I never had to be ashamed of mm. of Gene Taylor and and haven't since mm. 
Oh, that's 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 wonderful to hear. Uh, I think we can all identify that with finding people who are the same behind the scenes mm-hmm. as they are in front of the camera, and and that is just a a blessing a blessing when you find that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So maybe maybe talk then about what led you from this career in politics to. Uh, a seminary education. Well, I I was in uh, Washington. It was in I think July, um, and the Library of Congress would get rid of their discard uh, books, and and people could could take whatever they wanted. So I would always go through and take a bunch of books. And when I, it was really quick. I was sort of getting what I wanted really quickly and then getting home. And when I arrived back uh, at my apartment, I started sort of looking through everything that I picked up. And a lot of it was, you know, predictable Harry Truman speeches or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but there was a manual, a free will Baptist manual on weddings and funerals. Mm. And, uh, I thought, why did I pick this up? Why did I, why did I want this? And so I started kind of interrogating that and, and praying about it and mm. saying, you know, Lord, what is, what was this? And it just persisted. That, uh, that, that calling to ministry persisted, mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. And it was, and so I, when I concluded I really wasn't going to be able to get away from this, um, I was really, really apprehensive about telling my dad, uh, because my dad was a pastor's kid. He grew mm-hmm. up in a parsonage. Uh, he had seen all of the dark underbelly of, uh, of church life in a way that I had not. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that there were things that went on, but I was safely protected from mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wasn't because, you know, the business meetings spilled over into his kitchen and he mm-hmm. kind of saw what his dad had to live through. So I was talking to him about this almost the way that somebody else might be telling their dad, Hey, I was arrested mm. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. So I went in and, um, told him about it and he said, well, he said, I'm going to say this, this time and only this time. And if you decide uh, to go forward, then I'm going to support you and you are never going to hear this again from me. Mm. And that is, I wish you wouldn't do it because I, I, I've seen how my dad was hurt mm. um, by the church. And he, he said what he needed to say. And then he said, but I'll support you completely. And he did. Mm. And uh, that's one of the things that I really learned from my dad about parenting and just about life is he... He never, I mean, there were all kinds of times when there would have been, uh, you know, even if just in kind of a veiled, passive aggressive sort of a way to say, yeah, see, this is what I was talking about in, uh, 1993. Uh, but he never did, not one bit, mm-hmm. not even a hint of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you lost your dad a few years ago. Is yeah. In 2020. 2020. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'm, I, I had, I had the the privilege of uh, connecting a bit with your parents on Facebook uh, oh. around that time, and so mm-hmm. was able to just see how proud he was of you and how much he loved you. And um, uh, that's just that's great to hear um, how you you know you worked for a politician who was a man of integrity. You had a father who was 
a man of integrity who uh, supported you so well through through thick and thin. And, yeah. Um, well, and he was he was also uh, one of the things that I really there's a, an intersection between those two things because uh, my dad would uh, even though this is not anything he ever would have done uh, on his own, but he knew, you know, I was a high school kid who was deeply embedded in political stuff. He would go with me to campaign events. Mm. Uh, I mean, including, uh, I can think of a couple for candidates he didn't like at all <laughs> or, or support at all, but he went. And as I look back on it now, again, I didn't realize it at the time. He was connecting with his son. Mm. And um, I, I, that, I, I think only later does that really does that really come out and you mm. think, oh, now I see what he was doing. Mm. So you made the decision. What, mm-hmm. Where'd you go next? Um, I went to New Orleans Seminary for my uh, MDiv. And uh, while I was there, I served a, uh, a congregation in my hometown in Biloxi um, in a variety of, of different ways, but starting with youth ministry and, um, and continuing with youth ministry all the way through it, but with other things too. And so I served there uh, throughout the time that I was getting my MDiv and mm. Um, you know, we're, we're about an hour out from New Orleans. So I would drive in, um, uh, Tuesday through Friday, uh, take classes. And then I would be zipping back to do Bible studies or, mm. you know, teach and preach and so forth. And that was a, a really happy time. That congregation was almost entirely Air Force, mm-hmm. either, either active duty or, or retired Air Force. I can't, I can't think of anybody in the congregation that wasn't, mm. uh, other than Maria and me. And so you had kind of the best of all worlds because you had a congregation that was turning over by a third uh, every year. But uh, so you didn't have this sort of my grandma put that table there. You can't move it. You didn't have that. But you also had people who, because they were Air Force, knew how to make really, really quick connections and deep friendships and to get involved. Mm. So it was kind of the best of, of newness and and the best of stability altogether. It was a it was a really happy uh, time ministry mm. for us. Mm, good. And then after New Orleans? Then, then we went to Louisville. And okay. um, I, I was a doctoral student at, um, at Southern Seminary. Um, I did my, did my uh, PhD there in, uh, in Christian theology. Okay. And then how long you, were you there? Uh, well, I, I started my doctoral work in 97, finished it in 02, but I went on the faculty in 01. Okay. So I was on I was on the faculty at Southern that last year of my dissertation. Okay. Yeah. So I had you as a professor your first year of being a Yeah. That a was real the first professor. year. Yeah. So and how long were you there? I think you were in that two thirty PM class Tuesday. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was awake. Or <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be. You know, you were um one of the th- I, di- I didn't know you at all before I took that class. Mm-hmm. Although I just I'd heard great things about your lectures, and they were they were great. You were the and I and I and I loved the faculty there. I had a lot of great professors, but what, what stood out to me was you were the only professor that I think you gave us a three by five card and asked for a picture 
of, you know, the student and their spouse, if, you know, if, if they had one and, and then things you could be praying for and you and Maria prayed for those things. Yeah. And, um, and, and that just, that meant so much to me um, that you didn't just see us as pupils to pass information along to, but you really uh, loved us and cared for us and in many ways shared your life with us. Um, well, and in those years, it was, um, I really miss uh, those very early years because I had smaller classes then. Um, by the time I left, I, I it, they, you know, I, I didn't know everybody. Um, that, but, uh, you know, just like I know what class you were in, I, I can pretty much tell you who was sitting where. Uh, in both of those, uh, classes that I would teach mm. that, that first year. And for a little while after that, I could do something similar to that. Mm. Um, in a way that I really could, uh, I, I really could know what was going on and, and follow up on it at that time. Mm. I, I missed that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that meant a lot to me. And even, even in years after seminary, you know, I, I can remember in my first year or two of some, of pastoring, not having a clue what I was doing, um, emailing you for some advice. And, uh, I remember your reply was, I'm proud of you. And, mm-hmm. um, oh, I'm tearing up now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that just meant the world to me to have, mm-hmm. um, and, and now I can see as you share a little bit about your dad and, uh, Gene Taylor, why, why you are like you are. Um, but to have someone who was encouraging me and cheering me on was just, um, it was just wonderful, mm. wonderful thing. Mm. Um, Thank you. But so after Southern, what's what's the next move after that? Well, I was on the faculty uh, at Southern starting in 01 until uh, 2013. I became the provost, which is chief academic officer and dean of the School of Theology in uh, 04 and served there uh, throughout the rest of my, my time there. Until uh, 2013, I was elected president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Okay, which what, is, did, what did that involve? Uh, it's our, it was our denominations, um, public policy and moral uh, wing. And, and what that means is there are essentially two facets to it. One of them is preparing churches to deal with ethical uh, issues. So mm. everything from, you know, how do you think through um, living wills and uh, how do you think through racial reconciliation and, and justice or uh, divorce and remarriage, you know, those sorts of questions. And then the public policy uh, wing, which is to to represent um, Southern Baptists and other Christians in government and um, well in, in government in media uh, and in some cases in business. I would I would work a lot with say uh, tech uh, uh, leaders and, and so forth about ethical and public policy implications. Mm. Mm. So and so. It was during that time um, that there was, well, you, you're not you're not in that position anymore, um, and there was we're, we're working through um, uh, Donald Trump's candidacy, uh, COVID, uh, all those tumultuous years that all of us who are listening to this <laughs> had to live through. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened um, during your time there? Uh, 
Well, I mean, Donald Trump was a big, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's really an understatement, but was a big, um, uh, issue. And, uh, I, um, had, had and have very strong convictions about that mm-hmm. and, uh, was saying that, uh, from, from 2015, uh, on. And I realized what that would mean because I knew that, um, I knew how it works in, in evangelical Christianity, uh, because I had lived with it and I had seen it. The, uh, and not just with evangelical Christianity, but in American life right now, uh, there are very few people. My, my old boss, Gene Taylor, could not exist in this uh, framework because he was somebody who was of a uh, different party than the majority of his constituents and was out of step with his national party mm-hmm. and was perfectly willing to, to do what he thought was right. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that just couldn't exist now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew what would happen is that even if people had very, uh, strong reservations that they would, uh, they would ultimately adapt to mm. the leader, not mm. the other way around. And that's, that's mm. certainly what happened. But, mm. um, but that was, that was, I mean, there, there was, there was all, I mean, you think about the, the tumult of the last, uh, decade, you had the, regardless of where somebody is on it, the Trump era, uh, was part of that, uh, racial justice questions, uh, were part of that and sexual assault and sexual abuse questions Mm -hmm. are part of that. All of those actually are related in, in various ways, but yeah, that was the, that was the beginning of it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, um, what happened with the, the sexual abuse crisis as the SBC began to wrestle with that. Well, you had, um, you had a report that came out in 2019, I think, early in the year, uh, from the Houston Chronicle that went through and, and, uh, detailed over 300 instances just that they could find, mm-hmm. uh, in, in their, uh, reporting of instances of abuse in Southern Baptist contexts. And so we had been working in that area uh, some already and realized we've got to completely ramp this uh, up in equipping churches to know, because you had really had two problems. I mean, one, you have people who are actually predatory um, and who are slipping through. Uh, but you also had then a lot of people who aren't equipped to know what to do. And so, uh, they didn't know, uh, they, they didn't know how to do background checks or how to do these sorts of things. And, you know, maybe even more than that, there was a sense of, I think a lot of people had this idea that if somebody's a, a sexual abuser, they look creepy mm-hmm. and they give you a creepy vibe uh, immediately. And so you'll know who that person is and you won't mm-hmm. put that person in the nursery or, uh, but you know, you have to come in and say, no, that's, that's actually not how it works. Uh, they, these people know exactly how to appear to be not just normal, but uh, commendable. 
And that's how they get the power that they get. So teaching and equipping uh, people on that. Um, we came to a point where the Southern Baptist Convention as a... Um, you know, the, the way the polity works, the Southern Baptist Convention actually only exists for three days, uh, every June. Uh, and when those people would gather, uh, every June, they would act usually, uh, reasonably. And, and certainly we're very concerned about, uh, this issue and charged us to, uh, create, uh, curricula and other resources and dealing with that. Uh, and then we had the question of what do we do about these places that, uh, that, that knew that they had, hmm. allegedly knew that they had, uh, abuse and just, Sent people down the road where they could abuse again, mm-hmm. or 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 even kept them in the same church. And so J.D. Greer, who was president of the SBC, and I worked uh, together um, on trying to deal with that. And yeah, mm. so let's go to that conference, the event you had, uh, or or was it at the SBC? Um, there was an incident that got you in some hot water. Mm-hmm. Um, for our listeners unfamiliar with the story, can you can you fill us in on that? Uh, we had an event in 2019 in the fall that was called uh, that was caring well, and it was a conference we had in Dallas, I think. Um, gathering people in and talking about how to equip churches to to deal with uh, sexual abuse uh, problems. And Rachel Denhollander, uh, who is, um, you know, probably the leading expert mm-hmm. in the country on these issues, knew of a uh, situation that she said uh, she was going to speak to. She had the permission of the person uh, to speak to it if, this was somebody who said, if I didn't object and I said, you know, what we're doing here at this uh, conference is I'm not muzzling anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's the whole point of it is we're going to come in and have an honest conversation. So, I mean, we had a speaker who came in and said that we were not doing enough or not doing this right and really blasted us. We knew he would. And I wanted that. Uh, because, uh, and, and some, uh, several of his points, I thought, you know, that's right. And it, mm-hmm. it helped us to, to grow. So it was going to be a candid, uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and Rachel went ahead and spoke to that situation. She did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She and did. Not, not in any inflammatory way, no, but she, she simply no. laid out, uh, here's, here's what the situation is. Uh, yeah. well, well, here's, here's an example of mm-hmm. what I'm talking about mm-hmm. and, and said that. Yeah. And how, how were you, how, how, what response did you receive from that? Well, there were a lot of people who thought that that was disloyal, um, that you, you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't have an SBC event where an SBC entity uh, would be criticized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they saw that as uh, as disloyal. But there had also been—I mean, there was a long, there was a long period of time where the the there were leaders in the SBC at various times who had said 
that sexual abuse survivors were just trying to burn everything down. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, one leader said, we're, we're worse than the abusers themselves mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of their destructive potential. So you had that for a long, that sort of culture for a long time. And then you add to it the, uh, you add to it the real issues around women. Uh, that existed and exist uh, within that context. And then uh, you add to it the fact that um, I was uh, I was um, a Donald Trump critic and had had uh, been very clear about ac- before access Hollywood, but but mm-hmm. uh, coming out of uh, access Hollywood too. Uh, so you had all of that. Hello friends, my name is Amy Sylvester and I am the Community Director here at Nothing is Wasted. It is our prayer that these stories of hope have been a gift in ministering to your heart this past year. I don't know what you're walking through, but I know whatever it is, hearing how God is showing up in the lives of other people gives us strength to continue to move forward and the healing in our own lives. We are grateful that we get to partner with God in this redemptive work He is doing through Nothing is Wasted, including sharing stories just like this one here on the podcast. And we want to invite you to do the same as this year comes to a close. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Nothing is Wasted, we'd love for you to consider partnering with us as we partner with God and making a donation before the end of this year. Nothing is Wasted is a nonprofit, and your gift and donation is tax deductible. Your donation will allow us to continue to create the many resources we offer, including the free resources like the podcast and specific curated pathways that guide you to hope and healing based on your pain story. We have other lifelines that we create for you like masterclasses, and we do this because people partner with us in their donations. To give, simply go to nothingiswasted.com slash donate, and you can partner with us in helping people take back their stories and move from pain to purpose. You help us help the mom who just lost a child, the marriage that needs healing, or the person who just got the diagnosis. Your gift helps us create the resource that they need to move from pain to purpose. Thank you for being part of the Nothing Is Wasted community. We could not do what we do here without your support of this ministry. Thank you, friends. I, I, I just want to publicly thank you for um, having that event, for giving speakers the freedom to speak. Uh, I, I, I watched it. I thought it was a great event. Uh, the Caring Well curriculum, it benefited me. I, mm. I, had, I had had no... Uh, training at all on how to handle sexual abuse. And by God's grace, I hadn't encountered any situations that I can recall um, where I would have needed to respond to them. But um, I've had an education just from counseling survivors and from watching these stories. And um, I, I thought it was wonderful. And and at the same time, I found it appalling, um, just the level of vitriol and uh, backlash that, you know, uh, you and I, I think, have uh, several 
friends in common who were victims that were at the center of this and to some extent publicly and, and maybe yeah. others who weren't. And I, I'm not going to name them or name their stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's theirs to tell. But hearing the ways that they were treated um, mm-hmm. and spoken to and spoken about, I, and then knowing at the same time, just through friendships, knowing what happened to them behind the scenes was just absolutely appalling. Yeah. yeah, and that's the worst part is what uh, is what happens behind the scenes. It's mm-hmm. it's the it's the worst part, and it's um, it's one of those things where I I thought that I was pretty savvy uh, about human nature and and uh, these sorts of dynamics. And I was shocked at some of the mm-hmm. some of the things that went down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, um, and those women um, really are the heroes yeah. of of that situation. Um, yeah, and and in almost every case, in almost every case, they have ended up just enduring the most unbelievable hellscape. Yes, uh, since. They uh, told their stories, mm-hmm. and uh, that that just that has to change, yeah. or or we're going to be in a. Yeah. Uh, it, this is this is just yeah. quite a judgment. Yes, I, I that is one of the things I think that grieves me the most is these women stepped forward um, to share their stories publicly. Because they knew that other people would be in danger if yeah. they didn't speak out and abuse would continue to happen. And so they, it, it's not a stretch to say they put their lives on the line yeah. because this psychological effect that it's had on some Absolutely. of these friends has been um, life destroying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, they, and I know, I know some that live in terror. Of, mm-hmm. of revenge. Um, I interviewed a friend for almost four hours for another podcast. So we didn't air the episodes, uh, but who told me, um, please keep those. And if anything ever happens to me, um, publish, you know, air them. <sighs> and um, the that someone would live because they have that kind of threat going on behind the scenes is in the name of <laughs> that kind of threat in the name of Christ. Right just infuriates me yeah. um and uh, i so you you mentioned that a little bit being savvy about human nature um you you mentioned gene taylor being this man who you saw him to be the same in front of the tv camera and on capitol hill as he was in the car ride you know mm-hmm. uh, back in private um, did you expect such a incongruence in integrity uh, with religious leaders? I I expected incongruence. Uh, to, I mean, because uh, I had been in Southern Baptist life. I mean, I've been in Southern Baptist life all my life, but I'd been in um, in the room. Uh, for a long, long, long time. So I knew how this, um, this worked. And, you know, one of the things that was, but I did, but I did not know 
the degree of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that I think had to be uh, revealed because a lot of it I thought, okay, you're dealing with flawed people like we all are, uh, who are operating out of what they know. We can't really do much about them, but what we can do is to raise up another generation that does know what to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that I, I, I was shocked at some of the, at the level of incongruence, even if I wasn't shocked by the fact that it existed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had, I, I had very similar experiences. Um, I, I was very into politics in my high school years in the mm. early nineties, uh, where we're going through the Clinton scandals and mm-hmm. uh, everybody in my, uh, you know, sphere of conservative influence is telling me uh, integrity matters and character matters. Yeah. And you, you can't be a president without that. And, and hitting that sort of perfect storm of the, the Me Too, SBC2 crisis, Donald Trump, um, even just social justice issues that... Mm-hmm shouldn't be controversial mm-hmm, i don't think right. um and seeing seeing uh, it felt like a complete flip-flop of now character goes out the window as long as we can achieve some you know policy uh aims and and we can and maybe we you know i grew up with a mom who just probably because of what a sinner i was uh was always just hammering into me eric two wrongs don't make a right uh, yeah. the ends just they don't justify the means. And, um, and I felt like, you know, uh, many years later, uh, the the song that was so popular when I was in high school, you know, every, every night I say a prayer in the hopes of the, the, that there's a heaven, but every day I'm more confused as the saints turn into sinners, the heroes and legends I knew of as a child have fallen to idols of clay. And it, it, it left me feeling homeless and, disoriented. Mm -hmm. Um, How was this impacting you? Mm. Um, I think that it was, it was less about the overt stuff. I mean, it is um, sometimes people will bring up figures who were really hostile and, uh, and they're shocked that I have, you know, kind of affection for them and really don't have any, uh, have any ill will uh, for them at all. It's, it's the people who did know what was going on, but, um, and, and I don't mean just who did know what was going on in terms of abuse, but who, who did know what was going on in terms of the, uh, the, the toxic realities just generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and who would, uh, I don't even know how to, how to really word that. And I don't know if I will know how to word that mm-hmm. for a while, but that was more, that was more what was uh, a, a problem for me. Yeah. And also because, I mean, I, I very well knew I did not go into, uh, 
uh, ministry, first of all, and I certainly would have never become ERLC president if I did not know, okay, I'm going to have to deal with really, really controversial things. And as my predecessor, Richard Land, um, at the ERLC said to me uh, when I was elected, he said, look, this, this job, 30% of the people are going to absolutely hate you at mm. any given time, no matter what you do. And that, that 30% will shift around. <laughs> and, uh, and, that, and I knew that. Um, I just, I didn't know that rape and insurrection and those sorts of things would be, you know, the, those seem to be the, the, uh, the low bars and, and that we would have controversy yeah. on other things. But mm. I, you know, I went through, um, in pastoring some years of intense conflict, mm-hmm. division in the church, um, it 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 left me um, dealing with some severe anxiety, some severe uh, depression. You know, there were a few uh-huh. years where I was waking up wishing I hadn't woken up, and uh-huh. um, and it's 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 uh, it, I'm doing well now uh, mm-hmm. by God's grace and through therapy and medication and the gospel and um what what was this but that that was what i was going through was small level i i don't have the president of the united states calling me a nasty guy with no heart on twitter and people from my own denomination um so publicly going after me what what was this doing in your heart and with your faith at this time well, a lot of it um, didn't show up until after mm. because because you know when you're in the middle of it, the adrenaline is yeah. is going, and I, I didn't um, I didn't realize how much I was operating out of um, sheer. Uh, adrenaline yeah. until I was able to sort of uh, step back and and see this. Um, so it was kind of moving from from one thing to the the next thing. And I mean, you know, in some ways, in some ways, my situation was worse than it might have been otherwise because of what you mentioned with the very public uh, sort of way of it. Because that would be, I noticed that um, I would, and I still do actually, if somebody sends me a text message that says, praying for you, my immediate response is, oh man, what's happened now? Uh, so in some degree, that is the case, even though I wouldn't read any of that, I still haven't. I haven't read any of it. Mm-hmm. And so people will sometimes say, oh, what about what so-and-so said about you? I say, I honestly don't know that. Uh, uh, my wife reads it, but I don't read it uh, or, or has read some of it. But uh, so in some ways that was the case, but in a lot of other ways, it it was not as bad hmm. as what would happen for, I mean, I, I would say to uh, my wife all the time, what would this be like? If you are, uh, you know, 25 years old in Opelika, Alabama, in a parsonage next to the uh, church, you don't know what's going to happen with your kids, with your uh, living space, and you don't know anybody. I mean, I, I had... Mm. Um, 
a, a huge, huge network mm. of friends and and uh, counselors and you know, I mean, counselors meaning uh, giving me people giving me counsel and wisdom in my life and those sorts of things. I had that, mm-hmm. so in that sense, I think it was much. It was not as bad as it as it would have been yeah. for somebody in a different context. Mm. Mm. So maybe just briefly, and you. You talk, I think, more extensively about this in your book. Um, and again, that book is Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. What happened? How did, how did we get here as Christians in America um, that these sorts of things are going on? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the, one of the reasons I think is that, um, and, and, uh, Tim Keller, who, who died just this uh, year, he and I talked about this a lot in terms of the shadow side of, uh, of any strength. There's a, there's a shadow side. And this is true in evangelical Christianity. You have a, one of the reasons that evangelical Christianity has been able to thrive and do some really great things is that it's, uh, entrepreneurial and, uh, responds to, uh, people. Uh, and so you're able then to take the gospel out onto the frontier. You don't have to, you know, go through a, a bureaucratic uh, process to get approval to do that. You go, you put up a tent, you start preaching and you, and a lot of really, really good things are able to happen with that. A lot of entrepreneurial ways of doing campus ministry and global missions and all of those things. That's all really good. The shadow side to that can be that you can get into a situation where, uh, the, the, the mob sort of has, has control. Um, and so what you have to do is to say, we've got to find out what it is that people want us to say and say that. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that can be insipidly optimistic and sunny. You know, believe Jesus and you're going to thrive, you know, because that's what people want to hear. And in other cases, that can be dystopian and dark. Your enemies are uh, demonic and you're right to hate them as much as you do. And you're right to be as scared as you are. Those those things work together. Mm. And so you end up with that. And... um and I think, you know, this is not unique to Christianity, um, but it ought to be. But it's not unique to Christianity. It's the same sort of thing that's happening kind of institutionally in all other, uh, in almost every other area where you have this dynamic that works where people think, um, okay, I need to be at the table. Uh, and if I'm not at the table, I'm not going to be able to make change. Mm-hmm. And so that means I need to do what it takes to stay at the table so that I can make change. And to some degree, of course, that's true. You're, mm-hmm. you're in, in any context, you're going to come in and say, okay, here are some things that, um, I'm not going to deal with right now because yeah. I've got other things to do. But, what happens is you can easily convince yourself um, that what you're doing is sort of conserving your influence. And the problem is there never comes a time 
Mm-hmm. At which you say, okay, well, now uh, I can use my influence. Instead, what happens is over time, when, you, when you're afraid of your own people, uh, eventually you start adjusting yourself to whatever you think is going to prevent pain without even knowing that you're doing it. Mm. So you don't even mm-hmm. you don't even know that you're doing it, and that's you know there are um, uh, there are sometimes people will look at figures and they'll say look at how just crassly ambitious this person is because this person uh, said one thing and and now is saying the opposite and in in some cases yeah it's somebody sits down and says you know i've uh, uh this this is what i'm going to calculate that i need to do in most cases it doesn't work that way mm-hmm. in most cases it's much more subconscious mm-hmm. where you start to say uh, do I really want to deal with this right now? And then you have a, you have a, a process where you can talk yourself into, uh, mm-hmm. almost anything. And that's, that's how you end up. Uh, that's how we end up in, in the mm. situation we're in, in almost every way. Mm. How, how is that behavior? Or maybe let me ask it this way. How is the life and ministry of Jesus Christ different than that sort of behavior? Well, in so many ways, but but one one of those ways being what's really uh, one of the things that's really striking about Jesus is that you have you have all of these pre-existing uh, arguments and controversies hmm. uh, that people are trying to draw him into. Uh, and he absolutely refuses. He absolutely refuses to be tribal mascot uh, for anybody. So when he comes in and starts uh, letting the Pharisees have it, uh, the Roman collaborators would have every reason to think, okay, he's he's with us, uh, but he's not. And, and uh, the Sadducees would have every, he's not, he doesn't fit into any of those categories. And one of the things that really struck me um, just over the past several years is in the Gospel of Mark, after Jesus has multiplied the loaves, and the disciples are, uh, they're on the boat, they're, they're leaving the shore, and they start talking among themselves about the fact that they have no bread. And Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I realized one day we was saying that, you know, that wouldn't make sense. Because he's talking about uh, groups that were completely at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. Herod is occupying, uh, is a you know pretender to David's throne, is mm-hmm. a puppet for uh, Rome. The Pharisees are opposed to that and and want to uh, and want to see David's throne occupied by David's mm-hmm. heir. And uh, but he, he puts them together and says, "There's a way that the yeast can work." Mm. underneath in a way that you don't even realize where you become like to the disciples, the very people that you're on the run from or the very people that you're in opposition to, you can become like that. Mm. Mm. And uh, Jesus never does that. Mm. And that's that's part of what's 
I mean, just you know, one of infinite things. That's yeah. that's amazing. But that's that's <laughs> yeah. one of them. Yeah, and he certainly he certainly doesn't end up avoiding pain in order to um, accomplish kingdom purposes. Um, yeah, and it's. I mean, the other thing is that he, Jesus is um, Jesus is unpredictable. Uh, in the sense that I'm trying to imagine if I'm just on the basis of what we know from the Gospels, if if I were there following around with Jesus and I'm trying to get, okay, here's the predictable pattern of how he's going to respond, it would frustrate me to to no end because it's not predictable. He is responding to each person as person. Mm-hmm. And so he he knows in some contexts mm-hmm. that what he really needs to do is to get right in the middle of what the the actual issue is. Mm-hmm. There are other times where he says, "I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to ask you another question." Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases, where he says, "I'm not going to answer you at all," mm. and just leaves. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. there's no there's no predictable pattern to that, uh, except that. Um, you know, anointed with the Spirit, he has the, you know, as John says, he knew what was in man's mm-hmm. heart. So, he mm-hmm. he had that wisdom to be able to see it. Yeah. But it wasn't, mm. it, it wasn't predictable. Yeah. During this political season, the, these political seasons, I've, I've often thought about as he's gathering his 12 and he picks Simon the Zealot yeah. and Matthew the tax collector. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I would just love to have a transcript of the conversations between the two of them, who one's build a gallows and the other one is collect money for Rome, uh-huh. and um, and and then what what is Jesus saying? To yeah, both they're, they're they're probably they're probably saying we're trying to have a political debate here, and he keeps coming in and telling us a story. Nobody yeah. knows what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably <laughs> what what it was. Um, it, uh, enough about. Bad news. What is the good news? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ is that when uh, God promised, I will be with you and you will be my people and I will be your God, that that's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Hmm. who uh, walked among us and will walk among us again, uh, who was the, the very reflection of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, hmm. so that uh, God is Christ-like hmm. uh, and uh, who offered himself up as a sacrifice uh, for our sins, forgiving us of our sins, raised from the dead, and is interceding for us at the right hand of God. So we have the confidence to know that we're not, when God looks at us, he's not, um, he's not angry with us or, okay, I can't be angry with you, but I've got my eye on you. Mm-hmm. We're united to Jesus in such a way that God sees us exactly as he sees Christ. You're my beloved child. With you, I'm well pleased. He's not angry with us. And that union means that eventually he is conforming us to be like, uh, to be like Christ, mm. uh, in, in ways that we don't really like or want. And, and we, we kind of, uh, fight that, but that's, that's good news. Mm, that is good news. So let's, let's spend our, our last, uh, 
15 minutes or so meditating on how that good news speaks uh, to us in this time. And I, I want to start with, you know, your, your story and um, the, the suffering you went through, disillusionment you may have experienced um, on a public scale, denominational scale, that sort of thing. That's been experienced by uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians in America as they've gone through this exact same season and mm-hmm. they've had to interact on with churches and families and friends and workplaces on politics and abuse and all sorts of other issues. Mm-hmm. And um, they've been hurt. They've been wounded. Um, what does Jesus say to you as the individual who's experiencing that pain? What's the gospel say to that? Well, I mean, one of the things that it says is there is a um, there is a way to respond to this time with shame. I mean, there are all kinds. I mean, the, the, the thing that people say to me more than anything else uh, when they come up is to say, I thought I was crazy. Uh, and thought I was the only one and I didn't know how to put it into, into words. And, and what a lot of them, what they mean by that is I, I was carrying a sense of irrational shame because I'm thinking, because I, because I don't, I can't just conform to this. Hmm. Um, that must mean there's something wrong with me. And some of them start to think that in their minds, but a lot of them know better in their minds, but they still think that way deeper in psyche. And what what the gospel ultimately does is to call people out of uh, out of that and out of shame. And so one of the things that's that was really helpful to me is I had a situation one time, it had nothing to do with any of this, where I was just really beating myself up for the fact that I thought I had handled uh, something the wrong way. Mm. And uh, everybody in my life was saying to me, you didn't handle it the wrong way. You, you, You handled this the right way, but it never would you know, they could sit and explain it to me rationally, and it just wouldn't get to me until I was talking to this older man who said, yeah, let's just assume you did it completely the wrong way. What then? <laughs> and that is actually what uh, what helps me. And so for a lot of people, okay, yeah, suppose you are crazy and I am too. What then? Uh, you know, is, is, uh, yeah. is, is Jesus for you? Uh, or not. And so that's, uh, that's, I think, a, a primary part of it. The other part of it is there's a reason why, if you go back to that shadow side, there's a reason why it is so hard to differentiate between the church and Jesus. Because there's this organic union as a head mm-hmm. to a body. So that Ephesians 5 reality is there. So we're, we're meant to relate mm-hmm. to Jesus and his church as inseparable. But there's a shadow side to that, which is that we can't sometimes see when the church is operating 
uh, independently of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Jesus not only tells us that that's going to happen, Mm -hmm. he tells us that's going to happen. He says, I'm telling you all this ahead of time so that you don't become alarmed when it happens. Mm -hmm. Then he shows us this happening. Uh, Most of the epistles of the New Testament are about that. And then when we have Jesus speaking after uh, the first extended comments that we have from Jesus after his uh, ascension, uh, are very honest about churches that have uh, are in danger of losing their lampstand of his presence. Mm-hmm. So there's no idealized view of um, of the church at all uh, in the New Testament. And so I think for a lot of people who are going through this kind of disillusionment, um, I think that's good. Mm-hmm. Lo- let's lose our illusions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, uh, but there's a way to become cynical. And you can become cynical in, in two ways, not just one. You can become cynical by saying, okay, because I have seen all of this rot, that means that everything is rotten. Mm-hmm. And what that ultimately leads you to is a sense of, uh, you become rotten. Because mm-hmm. there, there is no alternative. So yeah. I, uh, or you can become cynical by saying, okay, this is the way the game's played. I'm going to play it this way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can do it either way. So you don't, don't do that. Look at the reality that Jesus has given to us, mm-hmm. which yeah. is not, it's not idealized. Yeah. That's good. What about, um, how we relate to and love those who are our opponents or those who, um, have, have hurt us. Well, I think there are different uh, there are different contexts that have to be treated differently. Yep. Uh, so I think there are. Um, I mean, I think uh, first of all, one of the things I, I tell people often is, in order to even come into this uh, conversation, you have to know where your particular weak points are. Mm-hmm. So, are you the kind of person who is um, more uh, more tempted to sort of lash out at people, or are you more the kind of person who is willing to just be absorbed into uh, a toxic uh, mm-hmm. reality? Now, you can you can do you can do the uh, the opposite of that with your disposition being in one way or the other, but. Usually, you've got to kind of make sure you're shoring that up mm-hmm. to, to really check yourself on that end of things. And then to say, okay, what is my relationship with this person? So there are going to be some contexts where what you say is, um, I cannot be in this place uh, safely. And in, in that case, uh, you, you shouldn't be there. And that doesn't mean that you're not a forgiving person. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other places where what you do is, you know, I'll have a lot of people who will say, I've got some friends or some uh, family members who don't agree with me. And every time that we meet, it's a, it's a fight. Hmm. Um, I have had that situation recently. I don't have it often because I'm so public that People know, you know, where I am on stuff. Yeah. So if somebody's willing to talk to me, they've kind of already baked that in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but sometimes it does. And what I had to say to somebody uh, recently is to say, "Look, um, you and I see this differently, 
but I really like you. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to lose the connection and relationship with you. And I'm not going to change you and you're not going to change me. Mm-hmm. So why don't we instead agree we're going to, we're going to be together on these things, but we're not going to discuss these things. Mm. And that can feel like to, to some people, well, that's like compromising uh, my convictions. Well, no, it's not because you're still, mm-hmm. you're still maintaining your convictions. You're saying for the time being, you and I are not going to talk about this. Yeah. And that's, um, th- that's in those sort of relational kinds of ways, especially because, um, a lot of times, but for example, you have a lot of people who kind of are given over to increasingly wacky, uh, conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times what we initially want to do is to cut those people off. Mm-hmm. Well, that only makes the problem worse because the reason people are susceptible to wacky conspiracy theories, one of the main reasons, is because they're lonely and they're looking for some illusion of connection. Mm-hmm. So removing their connection does not help the problem. Mm-hmm. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that those people are going to eventually say, okay, I, what was wrong with me? I'm coming back around. That, not what it does. Mm-hmm. So sort of seeing where's, where's the real problem here with uh, with these folks. Mm-hmm. And again, to say, what's the, what's the, um, what's the weak point? I mean, so w- one of the things that I have a friend who knows that his weak point is sort of, um, quarrelsomeness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if left to himself, what he's going to do is be in a fight and love every minute of it. Um, I know that is not my weak point. I actually hate conflict. Mm. And my weak point is a kind of nostalgia where uh, what I do is try to completely forget um, things that people are doing or have done mm. and sort of paint it in a much better picture. Mm. Uh, and in a lot of the, and if I let that go, then I'm going to end up propping up a lot of really, really awful things. So I have to check that and, and, yeah. and measure myself on that as well. Um, yeah. So, so you just have to kind of know that. Um, you have to know that yeah. about yourself as you're going into it. What does the gospel say to the person who is tempted to say, I'm just done with the church. Uh, there's, there's no future for the church in America. I'm out. Yeah. Well, I think, again, I think you have to relate to each of those people as persons, yep. which means you're going to respond, um, you're going to respond differently to them, even, even if the, the end goal is, is the same. Um, so I have, I have responded in different ways with, with some people. Um, I just kind of patiently am with them through it. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think, I think this is just something that they're working their way through and they really have to work their way through it. Mm-hmm. And so they're not, man, I have a friend who's, who's going through that process. And when she, uh, brings up, I don't believe, I, I don't believe in prayer anymore or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into it debate with her uh, mm-hmm. about that, some sort of theological debate with her about that, uh, even though I was her theology professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, instead, my response is, is going to be, well, I 
yeah, I can understand why she wouldn't. And I think she's going to, she's got to go through this time in order to, to be okay. And so I'm just going to be with her, uh, mm-hmm. through that. There are other people where what I've, what I've had to do is to speak very directly to say, you know, you're, um, you're really getting cynical and you, know, you, you just, you have to gauge that. And sometimes you're going to get that wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the biggest temptation that we have is to immediately give up on people. Mm-hmm. And when they start to say that, I've just, I've given up on the church. I can't, then we just immediately sort of count them as outside the camp and we sort of move them into a completely different category. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I mean, that is just, that is just not the Jesus way. (laughs) And so you have to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a savior who doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick and Mm -mm. break the bruised reed. He's, he, he doesn't forsake us. He doesn't leave us. Um, Yeah. And if he's, if he's as patient as he has been with me, um, I I have little reason (laughs) not to be patient with my neighbor who's, who is struggling. So good. Well, um, any final words you'd like to to give to our listeners? Well, I mean, I think that's a good final word is that, um, I mean, the the fundamental question is, uh, is the tomb empty? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if the tomb is empty, then that means that Jesus is telling the truth. And that means he is going to build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Doesn't mean that all the American structures are going to stand or any other uh, set of structures are going to stand, but it means he's going to build his church. And it means that the, uh, the future is bright long term. Yeah, that is good news. Uh, Dr. Moore, where can people connect with you online? Um, they can go to ChristianityToday.com or uh, RussellMoore.com. I have um, a newsletter that I put out uh, every Thursday, not this past Thursday because I had COVID, but every other uh, Thursday. Uh, and I have a podcast, um, The Russell Moore Show, through Christianity Today. And we also have uh, Mike Cosper and I have a, a news anal- weekly news analysis show uh, uh, and Nicole Martin, my colleague, called The Bulletin, uh, mm-hmm. which comes out on Fridays. Yeah. Yeah, well, listeners, uh, you would do well to follow uh, Russell Moore online. He is a uh, eclectic man um, <laughs> that uh, has a wide variety of interests and is never is never boring. Uh, we didn't get to talk about Johnny Cash, but I see him on the wall peeking over your shoulder, and so I'm I'm glad he was able to make a little bit of a, Johnny Cash an and C.S. Lewis together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would be a fun <laughs> conversation to sit in on. <laughs> I am sure. Well, uh, guests, thanks for joining us today. Again, our guest was Russell Moore. He is the author of Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. I think you will be encouraged by the book. So go pick up a copy of that and join us next time for another episode of the Nothing is Wasted podcast. Wow. What a great conversation. Oh, he's so brilliant. That man, like, man. he's smarter than me. That's what I feel like when I <laughs> when I hear Dr. He's Russell smarter Moore. than me. Yeah. yeah. You know, we have now had 301 episodes, and I would say most of the people <laughs> 
that we've interviewed are smarter yeah, than me. Yeah, they're smarter which than is us. Why we're interviewing right. them. We're learning. Interviewing we're us. learning from we're them. Learning. Yeah, that's that's right. We're <laughs> I know you, and I know you guys really learned a lot through that one as well. Um, you know, we it seems like the theme for the past couple of weeks we've been talking about this idea of remaining. Mm. A call to stay. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Russ talking about a call to, you know, back to the his to our first love yep. to Jesus, right? Yeah. In the midst of some disillusionment with the yep. church, being disenfranchised by it. You know, Aubrey, you're experiencing this on the ground as a pastor. Yep. Big time. Um big time. You know, I have to say I probably have a really uh great arrangement because I'm come in and do more of an <laughs> evangelical thing and I don't get to I don't have to hear the under right right all the, the underpinnings of what's really going on uh, <laughs> however we have some I have so many friendships with pastors who are yeah. you know they'll share that stuff with us and we're going yeah. oh my gosh this is so but in your own experience what are some, what are thing what are people being disillusioned yeah by right I, now? I would say and I and I can speak only to our community so I want to be mindful of the fact that this is not true everywhere but what we have experienced quite a bit of is people People and and let me say I'm in Chicago, where we've got some major high-profile pastors who have fallen right. to the ground with sin right. and toxicity. So right. our culture specific in that way, mm-hmm. but I would say that's a piece of it. We've got a lot of people mm-hmm. who are disillusioned with the church because these were pastors that they trust and loved and looked mm-hmm. to and helped define their discipleship and their understanding of Jesus. And suddenly they're finding out, wait, you told me Jesus was about humility. You told me Jesus loved the least of these. Yeah. You told told me Jesus cared about women. You told me Jesus and what we're the, to find out the whole time you're actually just power hungry and kind of a jerk and kind of an abuser. Yeah. Like, yeah. so there's that sense of disillusionment, which we did talk about in the previous episode. Some of it is unfair towards pastors who actually don't deserve it. They've been faithfully running the race and, and humble and just right. serving Jesus. But some of it is a result of just the ripple effect of some of the really high yeah. power toxic leadership and celebrity culture that we've seen yeah. in the show. Chicagoland area, and I think in a lot of states where there's been kind of that right. celebrity church thing. Um, and I would say, secondly, there's a there's a lot of some like you know this is I'm using this phrase tongue in cheek, but I I kind of mean it. Like some coming to Jesus moments with like the way the church has treated women, with the way yeah. that the white eva- evangel I can't say that white evangelical, white evangelical. church mm-hmm. has treated people of color the way that the white evangelical church has kind of become an um, an industry, a product-making right. thing instead of, again, what we're supposed to be the church. And so I, I actually think, Davey, and we mentioned this in our last episode, I love the church. You love the yep. church. Like, I yep. love the local church, and I still believe the local church is the hope of the world and God's not, plan right. A. You know what I'm saying? And there's no plan B. Um, And so I will always call people back to church, but some of what is happening there, I hear pastors afraid of deconstruction or afraid of conversations around decolonization or kind of removing from some of this evangelical industry stuff. Actually, it's really good. I think it's really right. It's It's calling us to repentance. It's calling Amira to get on her knees and remember like, no, our... The church is not about power. The church is not about this kind of weird toxic abuse or or success or whatever we've made it in a worldly sense. It is about right. Jesus and loving our neighbor, strangers, and enemies. So, like, yeah, that's right. if we can't get back to even like the, a beatitude type of living where we're honoring mm. the meek and we're caring for the poor, then like we have missed the way of Jesus. So, that's I'm right. grateful the Holy Spirit is calling people back. Now, what I will yeah. say, and I could talk about this forever. 
I do think <laughs> some people that are rejecting, they're rejecting power in such a way that it's actually keeping them from like the real power of the Holy Spirit in the church. That's right. That's and so right. Yeah. I think some people have to be able to go, okay, that's wrong. I will name that. I will not be in it, but I'm going to stay connected to a healthy local church because that's where the Holy Spirit is still moving and working. And the things I long to see are actually happening there. You can't lump the entire church into some of these terrible scenarios. I do think if you need to take some space for your own healing, do it. But there are healthy ways to re-engage with healthy churches that are trying to be a part of these conversations and do better. Right, anyway, right. that's that was a diatribe. I don't know what just happened. No, that's what, no. I love it, and I think it's so important that one. I, let me underscore: the deconstruction conversation is not a bad conversation. It's not. Every pastor that I talk to, I say lean into yep. it. Lean into the conversation yep. because people are reeling. They're reeling with pain, yep. disillusionment. They're they're asking some really big questions yep. that we need to be answering and we need to be diving that's into. Right. You may not be able to resolve their anxiety over certain mm-hmm. things, but you can bring them to the feet of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And show them that he can handle these questions. Right. And but I think there isn't uh it's unnerving because it does threaten to dismantle certain power yeah. structures. Yeah. Yeah. And and it threatens to dismantle methodologies yeah. of doing church that we've grown so mm-hmm. accustomed to running a certain play. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, that's okay, we've missed that's not the penultimate thing right. that the church stands yeah. on, that particular style of worship or that. Right. So I I think we're going. I think this season is a is a and dare I say a reformation mm-hmm. of sorts, almost like a, a almost of historic proportions. Uh, absolutely, I mean, it is. I don't. I don't. It's yet to be determined whether it's going to be of historic proportions like the original Reformation yeah. was, yeah. Uh, the great you know the great schism between yeah Catholicism and Protestantism. Right. What I'm hoping though is that this actually does the opposite in some ways. Mm. Hear me. What I mean by that is that it doesn't create a whole lot of division yeah. the way that, cause it's, you know, when the church split, then yeah. it, it began a ripple effect of division yeah. and denominations began to be yeah. a thing. And, you know, yeah. I, I'm wondering if this is going to end up becoming more of a unity type thing. Maybe. And there's like a new wineskin of like this denomination, yes. this denomination, this denomination coming together and trying to be like, look, we, there's something about like, Jesus we get that you don't, but let's yes. do it together and glorify God in this, different way and see God's right. manifold presence. I'm with you, Davey. I think there's something right. God's doing that could be could be unifying if we submit to the authority of what the yeah. Spirit of God is doing. Yeah. yeah. Our uh, our good friend Ken Roberts right now is in the middle of writing a book about the like quote unquote new reformation of the church. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited to get my hands on I that. That's for sure. I love that. It is something we've been talking, you know, I've been talking about a lot. Mm. We we like use that word tenant like tentatively or I guess hesitantly, mm. you know, that like reformation because it seems so big, but it does feel like a a rewriting of mm. what the church is. But and you know, I heard a pastor one time say this: "Don't got you know, don't boo my bride." Mm. Right. So for mm. all of its blights, for all of its blunders, the bride of Christ is still God's plan A. Yeah. He to to make known the manifold wisdom of That's God right. is what Scripture That's tells us. Right. So. So we have to, we can't abandon the church. Yeah. There has to be a a, a reformation of it. Yeah. There has to be right. a, That's right. okay, here's what we, mm-hmm. we're going to take, we're going to hold on to, like what you said, new wineskin, we're going to hold on to the, the things that are right, true, good, and beautiful mm-hmm. about the church. And we're going to let everything else fall yeah. by the wayside. Yeah. 
and that's what this sifting process is is hap- is doing right now. So, thanks for uh, opening up that, that conversation, Eric and Dr. Russell. Yeah, Moore. that, was, that really was so fantastic. Helpful thanks, for guys. all of us. Mm-hmm. For all of us, we want to make sure to remind you: join us for five steps for t- five steps to taking back your story. No matter what you've gone through, you can register at nothingiswasted.com slash start here. And that is for if you're looking to take a first step or a next step in your healing journey. We try to add a lot of value, give you some very practical handholds there, have some Q&A on the back end. Um, But it's a really valuable time for you, I think. And so so we want to make sure that you you get over to that if you're looking for more resources. And more next steps yep. in your So good. Journey. We also want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing all of the music for the Nothing is Wasted podcast. We can be sure to uh, download and stream his music wherever it is you do that. Also, while you're at it, like and follow us at Nothing is Wasted Ministries. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts so that others will find these inspiring stories as they walk through their own valleys. You can also engage with me and Davey on Instagram at Davy Blackburn at Obsamp and of course the ministry at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. That's right. Uh, next week we've got a great conversation with a friend of mine, Beth Marshall. She's been on the podcast before. Nice. She's coming out with a new book. You know, she wrote Grief Survivor, which is a great resource for anybody who's going through a difficult time. But she just released a book called Uncrushed. Mm. She is a dear friend of the ministry, dear friend of the mm. podcast, and so. Uh, you're going to be so blessed by this conversation. She's just got this uh, this warmth and this joy that she brings to the grief conversation that really fills your spirit. Wow! And so you're gonna you don't want to miss this. Mm. Um, let's go ahead and listen to a little clip from my conversation with Beth Marshall. And about two weeks later, I got a message from one of the chaplains there, and he said, we have gone through every single book. He said, you would not imagine the grief here. There's still a gaping, huge, horrible hole in this building, and everything smells like smoke, and we're missing people. He said, could you send some more? And I'm telling you all that to tell you, I was blown away by the fact that, okay, it didn't matter that it looked like an eighth grade science project. It mattered that God's word was in it and that he was using it how he wanted to. It wasn't going to be up to me. And I think that's how this whole thing started of realizing there is hope. And I think when we see that um, grief without hope, which I know we all see all the time, um, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's hard to not do something. And so that was my Mm. tiny contribution. I thought, well, here's something I can do to help people that are really wondering if they'll ever love their life again. Mm.